Hello and welcome to Sport Module Fantasy, Conflicts Within and Without. I'm your host, Zach. And here today with J.D. Franks, author of the Darkness Within Saga, uh, epic fantasy story takes place on Talona, but we're talking specifically today about conflict. Um, now, in your, in your books, there is conflict everywhere, but that the same could be said of any fictional narrative. I mean, there, it's, it is one of many tools for progression. When you're in a situation where you're writing, con where you're writing out, uh, you, you come to that pivotal moment where it's like, my character could go one of two ways. And you need to decide like, okay, is this a turn moment or is this a fight moment? That in itself is a conflict, but how do you make the decision as to if a conflict should occur and how it would impact your uh, characters? All of my conflicts will either happen or not happen based on the personality of the character who's in that situation and also who may be with them at the time. Um, as we know earlier on in the series, Kale was more likely to avert conflict as opposed to someone like Max. But as the books mm -hmm. roll on and how do I put it? More experiences are gained. Kale is now in book five and even coming into book six, more likely to engage in conflict than not because of the changes in his personality. So I think the character has to drive each each conflict, whether it happens, it has to, it almost has to, for me, it almost has to sync up with that character's personality. You know, and it's funny looking back, um, like when you, when I first started reading, when I were listening on Audible, um, you know, and Kale's character, he was, he's very honorable. He's very steadfast in his beliefs. And then just everything that, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but every, everything that's happened to him uh, over the course of, you know, five books has changed him fundamentally in certain ways from who he used to be. Oh, definitely. I think one of the characters who's changed the most is Kale, but then for the most part, the story is his. So I guess that would kind of make sense, but yeah. there's... There's always a there's always a reason why Kale faces the conflict that he faces, and most of that when I'm writing has to do with the laws and the rules of magic in Talona. Talona isn't a a world where, okay, yeah, you're gifted in magic, bam, you're powerful, nobody can stop you. That's it's not how Talona works. Talona, you have to you have to earn every scrap of power that you have, or have situations align in the right way. Kale's changes show how much that he's like, his change in personality has shown how much he has faced in Talona. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say like he, he does say uh, in his, well, both outright and in his uh, internal monologue, um, like Talona will chew you up and spit you out. And yeah. I think that uh, the way you created the world of Talona and just the nature of it. I think you did an amazing job of balancing out your, um, your, your, I guess your ecosystem, your global ecosystem with your mag with magic. Magic is not just a, uh, you know, a cheat button, like, boop, I can do this now. 
Like it's there, you know, for every, for everything, there's a balance to it. There's a counter. Yeah. And, um, that's something I really appreciated about that is because, and you know, that on its own, since we're talking about conflict, that on its own is a mat is a conflict on just an unimaginable scale that, you know, the ecology of Tolona balances the abilities of its denizens. Yeah. But you have to, you also have to remember most people who have read the books or have spent some time uh, messaging me or talking to me on social media know that Tolona, Tolona was evolved by magic. So when I'm mm-hmm. writing, that's something I always have to keep in mind is that magic is everywhere. It's a common tool, but it's just that for the most part, it's a tool. Mm-hmm. As further books come into play in six and in seven, then most readers will start to understand why why it is the way it is and why magic is such a an in such a, a deep part of the world. There's a reason why it's such a deep part. It comes out in book six and in book seven. And yeah. And speaking of book six and seven, um, we had spoken on social media about how um, you actually split book six into two books because the importance and scale of the conflict with uh, the antagonist, the Rytek, was too much for one. So I wanted to talk a little, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, or I guess just talk about the different scales of conflict. Cause you've got, you have conflicts in there that are as enormous as, you know, a, a continental, a continental scale war between uh, it, it, back in history that you have scenes of very, fairly early on. Um, and then you've also got the, the internal struggles of a lot of different characters. Um, Kale, you know, has some significant trauma that he deals with on a regular basis, which is made worse because of what he is in, in the story magically. You have people who are facing a lot of difficult moral choices all the time. Not all the time, but often enough that it's significant. Um, so yeah. how do you how do you handle the scale of these things? Like when do you um when you're looking at these various things and the impact that they're going to have? Because like you could have this massive battle where hundred people die and that is significant in a literal standpoint, but canonically it could have happened 400 years ago and it doesn't affect the main characters all that much versus like Kale's trauma, which impacts him severely, but only he deals with it at first. Yeah. Um, I guess what, what I'm asking is, um, do you try and put your, I guess, do you try and put yourself in the mindset of the character that's living through or reliving through that moment to determine how impactful it is? Yes. Or do you think more on the global scale for those? Most, most of, most of the conflicts are, I basically put myself in their heads. I spent well over a year creating the world of Tolona before I ever started writing Kale's story. So once I started writing, I thought about writing a story in, 
in this specific time area, time era, and Kale was going to be the hero and all the characters that were added, every character has a complete profile and how mm-hmm. they behave, how they act, special twerks, um, things like that. So as the books have evolved, so have their profiles. What's happened to them, what serious effects they've had, what trauma they've suffered. So anytime that there's a conflict approaching, whether it's globally or personally, I'm always in the head of the person whose point of view it's from. And I think that okay. because of the detailed files that I have on them, I think that I am hoping anyway that readers will see a more natural reaction to those conflicts and those decisions. So you do everything more or less on the fly, correct? Uh, besides the basic outline, yeah. Everything is put on paper when I, when I sit down to write. I have the basic outline for the overall story. Okay, gotcha. So I know where I'm, I'm hoping I know where the overall story goes. But it has mm-hmm. had to, like I said before, juke sideways several times because as a panster writer, there's oftentimes I don't even know when conflicts and serious decisions are, are going to arise. So having those ca- detailed character profiles definitely helps each character react in their own specific way. And, you know, I think on a personal level, your writing, your writing style lends itself extremely well to creating um, impactful and memorable conflicts in the story because they're happening because, you know, they're happening as they're happening rather than like, okay, well, I have this map and Kale is going to need to obtain this thingy which means he's going to have to go over to this place and do this thing by having, you know, and like by following a straight roadmap like that, I feel like your conflicts, like your conflicts would be a lot more um, static. Whereas yours are incredibly dynamic. I'm glad that's how it comes off because that's the, that's the goal for me as a writer mm-hmm. is to, Try not to be predictable. Try not to be wooden or static. But yet, when characters make the decisions that they make, those decisions are most likely because of what's happened to them in the past, because of their experiences, because of their personality of who they are and what they faced. Which I hope... Oh, absolutely. I've always hoped would come off as more organic than anything else, more natural. Mm, they are in, they are incredibly organic and natural, uh, and as well as um, uh, not just the the con- not just like the antagonistic incident, but also the reactions um, are very relatable to what's happening to them. Like they they equate out like their the reactions tend to be right at least. Personally, they see they feel right on the mark for uh, what's for what's occurring. The only the only difference uh, exceptions to that would be if there's a historical reason for that character to not react. Like you've got, um, it's not much of a spoiler to say that elves and wizards live for hundreds of years yeah. in your stories. Um, they could see this major battle as 
like, oh, great, none, another na- major battle versus a farmer who's going to go, oh, no, my farm's gone. This is my livelihood, like, and just breaks down. And yeah. you do a fantastic job of keeping those uh, in relation to each other, you know, like the, the wealth of experience versus lack thereof. And that's something I really, really enjoy. Um, that's part of the reason I really enjoy the series as a whole. And I can go back and re-listen is because of how organic those conflicts, the narrative is. Well, I've always, when I'm as a reader, it doesn't matter what book or what series or how many POV characters you have, but every book I've ever read, I've, there's always, I've always had a favorite. I love books with several points of view. I always have. It lets you connect with a character that, for me, is often the hero of the story, but not always. And Mm -hmm. even if it's a secondary character, there's always seems to be at least that one character where you can really connect with. You can almost like see yourself inside them, make the same decisions that you would make. And if I can get my readers to feel that way, even if it's not Kale, like Kale's my hero, Kale's... I write him because he's my hero. And mm-hmm. I know for a fact there are several people that connect with LaCory more. Uh, I've had people tell me, you're Lissa more. Uh, lots of people like you, Lissa, because she never lets personal feelings affect her decisions. She only acts mm-hmm. decisively when she believes it's for the betterment of Talona. And I've had people who, who do like Kale and follow him and he's the one that they've connect with because of his struggles he just seems to keep he just keeps moving on so they connect with him better and as a reader because that's what I've always liked it's it's good to know that my reading or my writing is having the same response for other readers I don't care if you connect with Kale or if you connect with whoever if you connect with somebody then Mm -hmm. I've then I'm happy and I've done my job yeah. See, I, uh, it's funny. I actually, um, I associate more with Max than I do, uh, with Kale and that's just a pure gut feeling to me. I don't have a logical explanation for it. I just, when I read Max's parts, I'm like, that's what I would do. Um, but you know, and going in and going into it, I, you know, and it's almost cause I read primarily fantasy with a little bit of sci-fi. I don't read a lot of nonfiction and um, that's another, that's a big thing to me too. I have difficulties with series that are written in the first person. Um, I just, it's, it's, it's a lot harder for me to do, to do that, to imagine that character if they're writing in the first person, because it's usually not as physically descriptive when they do stuff like that. Yeah, um, first, First person is but, pretty much gives you the option to, to like them or not, especially if it's the only first person you get, the only pers- yes. first person perspective that you get. Then you're pretty much locked into that hero of that story. And I guess I'm kind of like you. I prefer third person uh, multiple POV stories, but there have been a few for uh, mm-hmm. first person stories I've read that, that have been quite good. Uh, Michael Manning is is quite good at it. In some of his stories, you get a first person view of your of your hero, and he does he does a very good job of it. But then he also has offsetting chapters where you get third person POV. So 
the two together really do really do make for a good story but it's not an easy it's not an easy perspective to pull off i originally wrote both books one and two in the first person point of view and i just i just yeah yeah they were originally written books one and two in a first person point of view kales that would have been really interesting to read but i'm i i hope it doesn't come off as rude but i'm really glad you switched (laughs) yeah I? i just i wasn't happy with it i wasn't it didn't allow me to do what I wanted to do for uh, a broader world information. It just, it just didn't, just, it didn't work. And I was also just starting out as a writer at the time. And it was, it was definitely too much for me to handle. So I spent the next year plus converting those two books to third person. That was a lot of work, but it was probably the best yeah. decision I've ever made. I, I can I can only imagine how much work that would end up being because that's oh that's a lot of descriptives descriptives and adjectives to <laughs> filter in. <laughs> yeah, um, that, was, that was that was a long long year that one, but I'm it's definitely the decision I ever made. I don't think the books would have done nearly as well without it being in third person. Well, and, you know, and talking about associating with characters, especially in third person stories, um, I think it's, I think the third person is a lot more versatile than first person um, in yeah. regards to um, going through and like, because with third person, you can describe the entire scene all around the character in a 360 panorama versus yeah. in the first person where you're locked into what it's in front of them. What are they looking at? What are they hearing? Yeah, um, you, don't, you don't have that narrator's voice. No, you don't have that. You, that narrator's voice makes a load of difference. You only have the character voice, not the narrator. Whereas if you had like the narrator voice, um, you have all that, but then you can also express your interior monologue. Um, you can still express your sensations. Yeah. And by using that third person, it's a lot more versatile. Like, um, you, like you use, uh, at certain moments you use, you use your third person perspective on kale, but you limit it to what kale can actively perceive or even passively perceive. Um, unless you jump to another character, you, you, you do tend to keep it pretty localized on that third person there. Yeah. You know, you, you don't, you don't really do the, uh, you know, the, oh, but what Kale didn't see was the, the elf assassin to use the trope, uh, (laughs) uh, the elf assassin that was hiding six oak trees down to the left. Yeah. Instead, you'll switch to the perspective of said assassin, which I think, um, is a much more effective storytelling device. I like it. I use it, I use it, I use it a fair bit, as most readers know. Um, <laughs> Kale's, with Kale, Kale's POV being so tight, there's sometimes there's other information that should be delayed there or other actions that need to be seen. So by actually changing the scene mm-hmm. and going to a different POV, it just, it makes it easier. And, you know, uh, one of my yeah. beta readers 
my one of my beta readers always tells me every time he reads or re-listens to my to my series, he finds something else that that is linked further down or something that he didn't notice before. So if I'm showing a different POV, there's usually a reason why. Yep. And I have so I have I'm on my like I said, fourth or fifth re-listen of the series. And every single time I find something, I'm like, oh yeah, this was referenced. Oh yeah. Like uh, the first two times I listened to it, the character in the shadows, uh, when like the, uh, the mysterious entity in the shadows, it yeah. never dawned on me until about my third or fourth listen that, that about who that was. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, <laughs> even though it happens pretty early on. I, I don't want to ruin it. Um, so a, another another deal when we're talking about when we're talking about POV, uh, POV and closeness to a conflict, you deal with some fairly sensitive subjects um, in 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 a lot of your work, things that have happened to various characters. Um, like you'll have characters who are you ha you have characters that fall under the sway of trauma caused by um, not only physical torture, mental torture, and several other extremely really, uh, and several other really touchy, sensitive subjects. How do you approach those? Because it doesn't feel like you're just using it as, you know, a character development point for the character. And I don't feel like you over you overdo it trying to either avoid or engage with that like some authors might do. So I was curious, like when you come to one of those scenes and you're like, because, you know, as we've said before, you have a very stream of uh, stream of consciousness, consciousness method of writing. When you find that you're in one of those scenes, do you ever stop and just take a step and be like, should I keep this? And if, and if yes or no, how do you kind of make that decision and how do you kind of deal with um, the aftermath of that, the, the lingering trauma that exists within that character? Well, for the most part, I never second guess the scene until after it's completely written. And usually in my first draft, I rarely second guess any decision that I write. For the most part, I just write the, the book out the first time around. And then when I go back through it a second time, that's when I evaluate whether scenes are cut or not, depending on the delicate subject matter. We'll call it that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't... Plenty of violence, plenty of detailed violence in my books. Um, but when mm -hmm. it comes to... When it comes to sexual assault, that one, I usually... I, I dial back because I don't... I, I don't see a need for it to go into great detail totally understandable my personal feelings i i often feel in books it's gratuitous it's yeah i don't think it i don't think it i don't think you see every every horrifying every horrifying thing that happens in that scene um to be fair i have pushed it to the limit i pushed it to the limit with ember but that mm. that had nothing to do with her character, her character changing or redirecting her character development, that had to do with showing the the absolute brokenness of the 
the people that were in the scene with her and how much power that one man held. That's what it was to show, which is also why it never, you know, it was stopped before it got serious. But in Mm -hmm. that situation, stopping it before it got serious was also the organic thing to do. It's yes. You know, it felt exactly right. And the people with her would never give up. They would never in any way, give up and stop and allow that to happening without putting their lives on the line first. So like most other ways, when I write that has to do with, with the characters that are in the situation at the time and how they would respond. And then the trauma going forward affects them based on their personality and how they encountered the situation. Yeah. And um, it's absolutely like that. That scene specifically, I was, when it happened, I, I had, you know, the first time I read through it, I had, or listened through it, I, um, I stopped and I paused for a second and I was like, that scene, I, I didn't like when I, when I first listened to it, I didn't feel like that was a, a character transformation moment. Like a lot of scenes are like a lot of conflictions, conflict scenes are. I felt like that was more of just an example of like, this is because Ember, Ember is always, um, she is a highly empathetic, like to a magical extreme empathetic, but she's a highly empathetic, caring, but sturdy, uh, young woman. And, you know, and, and I think that that was, and even though it was a touchy subject, it was a good way of showing that she is not a pushover. She is she is strong. She can stand on her own and defend herself. And it also showed the like the lengths that um Sefi as a friend was willing to go to to protect her her friends. That uh from a that season that scene had less to do with ember than it had to do like you said with the other people in the room um it was to show how far off the rocker marrow had gone and it was to show what the other characters there were willing to do in order to help ember and the last part of that scene was to show how how strong that face sense of justice is so it was a that was that was what I was trying to convey as the writer. But that's that scene. It's like the Fey were these healers. They were believed in, and, you know, and it talks about you know the Fey believe in fairness and they have empathy. But it that's that was a really good way of showing like the Fey aren't just you know soft healer pushovers, but they are they are a force all onto themselves. And I think that did a really good job of that. But it also, like you were saying, it showed the depravity of Emperor Miro, how far he, how far fall, how far fallen he really was because I guess it's part of the world building. So it's not much of a spoiler, but um, his empire um, worships the Fae as though they were deities for him to think himself above uh, a member of the Fae race who is the idol of worship yep. shows that not only does he not believe his own, yep. uh, his own preachings, 
but that um, he views himself as akin to godlihood. You know, he he thinks himself untouchable. Like his hubris really came out in that scene. Like it's it 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 pops up in more mild forms previously. Yeah. Um. But in that scene, it really showed like like what a what a nutcase. Like he's just yeah, uh, incredibly off off his rocker. And then, um, everybody in that scene not caring about a diplomatic incident to protect their friend as well. Like their their capability in that was yeah. absolutely impressive, as you said before. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really glad. I'm glad you brought uh, some sensitive subjects like that like that scene into the story. Cause I feel like there's a number of authors out there who will go great lengths to avoid anything like that. And they'll try and paint it. Like the world is this dark, harsh place without ever broaching some really difficult topics. And it makes the world feel yeah. shallower, I guess. Um, but it also like by including it, you also inspire a little bit of hope about the world too, mm-hmm. because you know, here's this horrible thing happening, but people are coming to people are coming to defense to this character's defense about it. So it's not, you know, not all hope is lost situation. It's a this is difficult. We can get past this. Tone is a difficult world to to survive in, but mm-hmm. I hope I've managed to keep the sense of hope alive. Um, that'll come. That'll definitely come more with book six. A lot of a lot of big changes are coming in book six because I split book six and seven. So there's a lot of a lot of things will be brought to light in book six. Put it that way, and that'll leave book seven. That'll be the the final conflict with the with the right act. And book six will lead up to it and start to lay the groundwork for what happens after book seven. So okay, are you planning a? Uh a lengthy continuation like beyond book seven or are, do you kind of have an end point kind of in mind? I have, I do have an end point in mind, but it's, we'll have to see what happens after I finish book seven. But, um, original plan was nine books, nine to 10 books and the world grows, things change, storylines change. Um, so, Splitting book six into two will probably mean I'll be looking at 10 or 11 books now. But there is there is definitely a full-fledged story beyond beyond the conflict with the Raita. That's about okay. all I'll say now is that the books will not end with the conflict with the Raita. So mm-hmm. that'll be the, it'll be jumping off for more, for more. See, I had a feeling, um, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the events in book... Um... Uh, the events in book five made me feel kind of like I was like, there's something else coming too. Like there's. Yeah, that's well, it actually started in book four. There's, there's a couple of little hints in book four, more in book five, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to drop hints that there's, there's definitely more coming. And that's, that's my original, my original, my original outline for that time frame was nine to 10 books. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said before, I spent the whole year creating Talona and its history. 
that's why every town you go to, you get little tidbits about, you know, their economy, how they work, where their money comes from, what they're known for, that type of stuff. And because of setting things up like that, and uh, you'll get more and more as the books go on so that you can see there's, there's definitely more story there. So in constructing Talona and creating his, some history, things like that, um, how much research did you have to do like to, to go in and be like, okay, um, this type of economics or, oh, I'm guessing like to try and come up with um, a contextual historical precedent, like how much research did you, did you really need to do or was a lot of it off the top of your head? Uh, some was off the top of my head, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of research. I did a lot of research mm-hmm. on a lot of different topics. Um, most of it isn't current, what you call current research. It would be the way cities and villages operated a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago from what you can yeah. find. Same as with, uh, same as with, uh, the different races and stuff like that. I probably did more, yeah, more, more research on the Northmen being akin to Viking than any of the other, any of the other races. Cause I wanted to be respectful to the Norse way of life. Well, mm-hmm. everybody knows Kelowna is not earth, but it is. Yeah. They are, they are tied together. So I wanted the, I wanted the Northmen to be respectful. So that, that, that was a ton of research. That was a ton of research down to the language that I decided to use everything. That was a lot of research and any new city, new faction, new, anything new pretty much gets several hours of research as I plot out for that, for that new city or that new faction, regardless of what it may be. Speaking of the Northmen, um, I really Mm -hmm. like when I, uh, when I stumbled upon really the uh, the novella, the Northman, um, which provided a lot, which provided you know the backstory to their race, that I found was uh, an incredibly interesting read. Um, it was a nice little break, yeah, from the main narrative, while it still was contextually relevant. Um, but you know and. To you know, today's episode was conflict. Is conflict, and the Northmen live for conflict <laughs> in a lot of ways. That they do. They'll jump the chance to fight. I think you did uh, a pretty great. I think you did a pretty fantastic job in um, adapting a lot of adapting some mythology from the uh, from ancient Norse and things like that, and using it as a basis for a lot of the Northmen history. And things like that. And I liked, um, I, I compared the Northmen because I was thinking about it just the other day while I was uh, listening. I'm in, actually, it was yesterday. I'm in, uh, I'm currently re listening to book four. I'm up to book four again. And um, I was sitting there, and just yesterday, I was sitting there thinking about it. And um, I likened the, the North, the, the Northmen yeah. to um, the Aesir of yeah. Norse mythology. Like the not quite God, but up there race, um, just because of their strength, their prowess. And there's even a couple of times where they yeah. refer to themselves as not strictly human. Yeah, they are not, they're definitely, they're not human any more than 
I mean, they, they obviously they have a human appearance, but they're, yeah, they are definitely their own race of people in the same way that the Oratak mm. or the Ritek are. So they, they live longer. They don't live as long. They don't live as long as the Alvin or, or any wizards, but they, uh, yeah. they do, they can get close to 200. A couple of them have, have gotten up there, but mm-hmm. they, uh, they probably have an average lifespan about 150 to 175. So they definitely yeah. see more experience more than the humans of the world. That's for sure. Like that was that, that little short story. Oh, and then um, you had sort of the precursor uh, novella that came, that takes place before the events of book one. That was also a very, that one was a lot, was really emotionally grabbing because like, you, like I went through and I was reading through and it, uh, I think I was, I think I had just finished book two when you drop when you when you dropped sins of the past and so then i jumped back and listened to it and i was just like yeah here was this this character who at that point was warming up but not you know fully revealed yet and then to find out her backstory and not even her full backstory like uh, a fairly recent occurrence which is why which is a part of why she's so closed off and i'm just like that makes a lot of sense now. And it was, it was really emotionally grabbing um, some of the events in those books. Like there was, there was a lot more, there was a lot that you didn't see. I guess it, it brought depth to her character in a big way. I can see that. I wrote uh, sins of the past first. My podium didn't pick it up for audio until after the first two had come out and were doing really well. And then they wanted the audio rights for Sins of the Past, so I gave it to them. So I actually wrote Sins of the Past first and then wrote, well, I shouldn't say first. I had started writing the first book and I knew that it was going to be a a long book. And I thought, well, you know, it's going to take me a year or two. Might as well start my social media presence. So I wrote Sins of the Past as a freebie slash 99 cent book for for people as an intro to my series, mm-hmm. but it did uh, a lot, a lot of people, you know, along one single novella hanging out there, it's kind of hard to get attention for it. Yeah. But once, uh, once podium publishing picked it up for, for audio and optioned it for the audio book, a lot more people got to see it. So I was kind of glad about that because it is uh it is an emotionally charged conflict filled novella. Like a lot, a lot goes on in that, can't even remember how many pages it was but not very many no it's 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 like i said it's a novella it's fairly short and it is packed to the gills with uh important events yeah but i mean it yeah i enjoyed writing it 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 definitely would have made a good primer but i don't think they did you dirty by any means by uh releasing it after the first two books had come out because the character was introduced and then all of a sudden you have a bunch of context as yeah. to the backstory, which builds empathy for the character for yeah. future development. And it worked. I think it worked out personally. Oh, yeah, no, you can't. And no, and I, I, I can't possibly blame podium for anything along that lines. I mean, a, they've been fantastic and you know, they, it's not, it's not cheap putting an audio book version of a book together and you know, a small novella like that, it wasn't really worth, it's not worth it to make an audio book for them. Mm-hmm. But once, once, you know, you're established with podium and they understand that your books are going to sell and they're going to keep selling, then, you know, they, 
they grabbed it up and put a little something together for it. So that was actually a that was actually a bonus for me because a lot more people get to see it. Yeah, that's and I quite like that story. It's it's definitely like it's a hundred percent worth the li- worth to listen to, and you can absolutely like for for anybody who hasn't read the series, read or listened to the series yet, you can. It's a fantastic primer into the writing style and the the feeling of Talona and the the saga. Um, it doesn't, you know, it definitely gives you a good. And you also get the you get the lead in scene to what happens at the beginning of the legacy too. So mm-hmm. it was definitely worth the audible credits. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Um, well, I think, you, you know, I think we've, uh, we've pretty well kicked it here with, uh, talking about conflict for today. I mean, there's, it's a subject that we could go into a, a, a million and five different facets if we started getting more specific and we didn't care about spoilers, but I think we've pretty well kicked yeah, it for today. True. Um, yeah, uh, again, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And that's all we have for today. If you would like to hear more from J.D. Franks, you can always reach out to him on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to pick up The Darkness Within Saga, which I highly, highly, highly recommend, they're available on Amazon as well as Audible. If you'd like more about the Spore module, we have everything hosted on robofungus.com and it's available on most major streaming outlets. For more RoboFungus media, you can check us out at robofungus.com.